You're listening to City Edge Church. For more information, go to cityedgechurch.com.au. If you'd open your Bibles to 1 Corinthians chapter 15, we'll be continuing uh, a little bit with, uh, well, continuing on from where we looked last week, where we considered the uh, most important thing you'll ever know, according to the Apostle Paul in 1 Corinthians 15 verse 1. Paul said, I would remind you, brothers, of the gospel that I preached to you, which you received and in which you stand, and by which you are being saved, if you hold fast to the word I preached to you, unless you believed in vain. For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures, that he was buried and that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures. That's the gospel in a nutshell. We're all sinners. We're rebels. We're enemies of God by nature. But Jesus Christ took on himself in his own body the penalty that was due to us for our sin. And that penalty, as we all know, is death. And he did it because in Jesus' own words in John 3.16, God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whosoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. So we get to enjoy the benefits of his finished work on the cross, that is reconciliation with God, eternal life, and much, much more. Now, the gospel never guarantees that we'll be healthy, wealthy, and happy in this life. It never promises that we won't suffer. And in fact, it almost guarantees that we will suffer and sometimes suffer terribly. But, and this is a big but, it does promise that our suffering won't last. It does promise that whatever suffering we experience in this life will be reversed and rewarded in due time. Now, I mentioned, I think, last week that the Bible is a story all about promises and reward. The Lord promises something and he guarantees to give what he promises to those who will trust in him to fulfill his promise. And one of those promises is what Paul goes on to talk about in 1 Corinthians 15, the resurrection of our bodies. And one of the first promises of resurrection is found in Abraham's life. Interestingly, it's not recorded as a promise in the original account, but certainly Abraham saw it that way. You'd recall the story about Abraham being called to offer up his son Isaac, his son, his only son, whom he loved, as God put it to Abraham, as if to rub in just the preciousness of what he was being asked to sacrifice. Abraham obeyed, even though it must have been a heart-wrenching moment and decision for him. And as we know, an angel of the Lord stopped him at the last moment and prevented him from going through with the sacrifice. A book of Hebrews tells us in Hebrews 11, that great chapter, the hall of faith. By faith, Abraham, when he was tested, offered up Isaac. And he who had received the promises was in the act of offering up his only son, of whom it was said through Isaac, shall your offspring be, be named. He considered, that is, Abraham considered that God 
was even able to raise Isaac back from the dead, from which, figuratively speaking, he did receive him back. That's Hebrews eleven seventeen to 19. It's probably the earliest example we see or clearly recorded the example we see in the Bible. Job, I think, must have understood something about resurrection as well, for in the midst of his painful affliction, he cried out, For I know that my Redeemer lives, and at the last he will stand on the earth. And after my skin has been thus destroyed, yet in my flesh I will see God. After my skin has been destroyed, yet in my flesh I will see God, whom I shall see for myself, and my eyes shall behold, and not another. David sang from the same songbook. Psalm 16, David sang, Therefore my heart is glad and my whole my whole being rejoices. My flesh also dwells secure. For you will not abandon my soul to Sheol or let your Holy One see corruption. But David, who wrote that psalm, did see corruption. Peter quotes this passage in the book of Acts on the day of Pentecost to show that the resurrection of Jesus was always part of the plan. And that's what David was singing about at the time, even though he didn't realise what it was. Paul makes that clear in Acts 13 as well, where he says, God raised Jesus from the dead. And for many days he appeared to those who had come up with him from Galilee to Jerusalem, who are now his witnesses to the people. And we bring you the good news that that what God promised to the fathers, this he has fulfilled to us, their children, by raising Jesus. As it also is written in the second psalm, you you are my son and today I have begotten you. And as for the fact that he raised him from the dead, no more to return to corruption. He has spoken this way. I will give you the holy and sure blessings of David. Therefore, he says also in another psalm, you will not let your Holy One see corruption. For David, after he had served the purpose of God in his own generation, fell asleep and was laid with his fathers and saw corruption. But he whom God raised up did not see corruption. Corruption is the breaking down and decomposing of our earthly bodies. It's part of normal human experience when we die. We will all suffer corruption one day when we die. But corruption, decomposition, is not the end of the story. I might say a bit more about this in a future message, but for today I want us to think about why resurrection is so important. What makes it part of this message of first importance that Paul shared with the Corinthians? In verse 12 of 1 Corinthians 15, Paul writes, Now if Christ is proclaimed as raised from the dead, how can some of you say that there is no resurrection from the dead? But if there is no resurrection of the dead, then not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, then our preaching is in vain and your faith is in vain. We are even found to be misrepresenting God because we testified about God that he raised Christ, whom he did not raise, if it is true that the dead are not raised. For if the dead are not raised, not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile and you are still in your sins. 
then those also who have fallen asleep in Christ have perished. And if in Christ we have hope in this life only, we are of all people most to be pitied. It was not too many years ago that YOLO was a popular term. You only live once. It was plastered all over the internet, on T-shirts, in tweets, on bumper stickers, in songs. You couldn't escape it. You only live once. So best to make the most of this life while you can. Throw out all the old rules. Have as much fun as you can while you still live. Don't let society or convention constrain you. Don't worry about who gets hurt along the way. Just live it up and live for today. It's not a new philosophy. It goes back to the earliest days of human history. Let us eat and drink for tomorrow we die, Paul says in verse 32 of the same chapter, quoting from Isaiah 22.13. But it goes back even earlier than that. Solomon talks about that attitude in the book of Ecclesiastes. And I'll bet even Cain was thinking that when God confronted him about killing his brother Abel. Am I my brother's keeper? Cain says to God. Why should I care about him? I've got my own life to live. It's probably fair to say that that's the default setting of every human being. We only live for today, so let's have as much fun as we can while we can. It offers us the prospect of justification for what doing what we want to do. And when we want to do it, and to heck with what anyone else might think about it. Now, it seems that some of Paul's original readers didn't believe that Jesus Christ had been raised from the dead. Hence why he spent so much time, I think, in the previous verses, pointing out how many people had actually witnessed the resurrected Christ. There were some who seemed to think that it was only Jesus Christ who will ever be raised back to life. Ordinary people can't expect that to happen to them. Jesus was a special case, a one-off was their thinking. But Paul is adamant that that's not the case. Whatever Christ went through, believers can anticipate for themselves also. After all, Jesus Christ was fully human. He had a body no different to theirs, no different to ours. So resurrection is a promise for all believers. In fact, it is a promise to all people everywhere in every age. Where that resurrection leads will be to one of two very different places, though, depending on your relationship to Jesus Christ when you die. But it will be the universal experience of every human being. Now, Paul's argument is this, is that if we are not raised from the dead, then neither was Jesus Christ. And then that has several implications, and none of those implications are good. If Christ hasn't been raised from the dead, then everything Paul has proclaimed about the gospel is meaningless. It's a waste of breath. If Christ hasn't been raised, raised from the dead, then not only has Paul been wasting his breath, but our faith is meaningless. If Christ hasn't been raised from the dead, then Paul and every other preacher of the gospel, ancient and modern, is a liar. 
is if those problems are not bad enough, Paul goes on to list some others that are even more serious. If Christ hasn't been raised from the dead, we're still in our sins. And if Christ hasn't been raised from the dead, those who have already died can never, ever be saved. And if Christ hasn't been raised from the dead, then we are pathetic human beings who should be pitied by everyone else for believing that he has. Let's take these one at a time, starting in verse 14. Preaching the gospel is a waste of time. If this message of resurrection is wrong, this message that Paul is so emphatic is of first importance, then nothing else in the Bible can be trusted. All of the message about Christ falls to bits. In fact, this has been a point of attack on the Christian faith for centuries, so far unsuccessfully. And because our God is true and faithful and reliable, those attacks will continue to fail. But Paul himself invites that sort of scrutiny and that sort of attack with this passage. Essentially, he tells everyone, prove the resurrection never happened and you prove that Christianity is a pack of lies. That's why it's a favourite point of attack. It seems such a simple task. You don't have to prove that God doesn't exist. You don't need to demonstrate that the Bible is fiction. You don't need to show that the universe and life all happened out of an uncaused big bang. No, it's much simpler than that. There's only one thing you need to do. Just prove that Jesus Christ was not resurrected. Unfortunately for the opponents of Christianity, they've not yet been able to do that. In fact, attempts to research the resurrection to prove it false have been the reason why some people have actually become Christians. There's a story told about the author of Ben-Hur who was challenged to prove that the resurrection was wrong. And the more he studied, the more he became convinced that it was true and committed his life to Christ based on that and ended up writing Ben-Hur, which uh, the story in the movie you all know about. As these people discover that the evidence for the resurrection is compelling, so their certainty about all aspects of Christianity, their previous certainty, begins to crumble until they reach the point where they are compelled to put their trust in the resurrected Christ because that's what the evidence points to. That's how important the resurrection is. That's why it's of first importance. That's why Paul writes elsewhere, for I'm not ashamed of the gospel, for it's the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes. The next thing Paul says, also in verse 14, is that your faith is futile. So it follows that if we're trusting in the resurrection of Jesus Christ as foundational to our faith, and if he has not been raised back to life, then we might as well believe in leprechauns and fairies and Martians for our salvation. We might as well put our trust in Casper the friendly ghost for all the good it's going to do. It is all a waste of time and a waste of our mental resources resources and our spiritual energies if Christ has not been raised from the dead. Verses 15 and 16, Paul says that every preacher then is a liar 
if Jesus died and is still buried in a grave somewhere, then all of those original witnesses, hundreds of them, are liars. And every preacher since then who proclaims the resurrection of Jesus Christ is a liar. Or, at best, a fool. Friends, if Jesus Christ is not raised from the dead, then each and every one of us should renounce our Christian faith now and pack up and go home to enjoy our Sunday mornings with our families. For it means we're all believing a lie. And worse than that, if Jesus Christ has not conquered death, then he's also failed to conquer the one who holds the power of death, that is, the devil. What do we have to hold on to and what do we have to look forward to if the devil is more powerful than God? Worse, in verse 17, you're still in your sins. This is the worst part of all, but it's a natural consequence of all that we've just been considering. The resurrection of Jesus Christ is a vital part of the gospel message. It is more much, much more than just the message that Jesus died on the cross. That's only the start of it. If Jesus died and nothing more, then we're not released from the burden of our guilt for our sins. In Romans 4, Paul talks about Abraham's faith, and he says there, that is why his faith, Abraham's faith, was counted to him as righteousness. But the words it was counted to him were not written for his sake alone, but for ours also. It will be counted to us who believe in him who raised from the dead, Jesus our Lord, who was delivered up for our trespasses and raised for our justification. Imagine this scenario. Imagine you've been convicted of a crime which has a fixed five-year jail sentence. You go to jail, you serve your five years, and you wait for the cell door to be flung wide open and to be escorted out to freedom. But imagine that that day never comes. At 10 years, you're still in your cell. 15 years, 20 years, 50 years, you're still in your cell. If you are never released, then obviously you're still in prison. doesn't matter that you've fulfilled the penalty. The evidence that you've served your time and paid for it is when you finally walk free. So it is with the resurrection. The resurrection of Jesus Christ is the evidence that the penalty paid by him on the cross on our behalf was acceptable and accepted by God. And that there is now no more penalty to be paid. And so now... All who put their trust in this risen Lord and Saviour, Jesus Christ, are set free, are released from their sins, released from bondage. The punishment that was due to us has been put on the shoulders of Christ and served by him instead. And instead, our faith is counted as righteousness, which means that when the believers then or when we today put our trust in him, We are justified. That is, we're considered not guilty before God. Just as if I'd never sinned, as the child's explanation of it goes. But it's more than just as if I'd never sinned. 
For if it was just as if I'd never sinned, that would leave me in a morally neutral state, not guilty, but also nothing to commend me to God. Now, when we put our trust in the risen Christ, his perfect obedience is credited to our account as if we are the ones who have fulfilled every aspect of the law perfectly. And he reconciles us to God and he draws us into his family. That's part of why it's so important that this gospel message of resurrection is true. Paul goes on to say that those who have fallen asleep have also perished. If Christ is not raised from the dead, then there is no hope for those who have already died. They have died still in their sins, cut off, alienated and at enmity with God. The devil wins and they all lose. And we have no future prospect of ever meeting up with them either. Paul says later in this chapter, quoting from Hosea 13, verse 14, O death, where is your victory? O death, where is your sting? If there's no resurrection, then death has the victory. Death has an irreversible sting if there's no resurrection. Death separates forever those who are once so close. There's no joy to be found in that prospect. But that's not the message of the gospel. Paul wrote to the Thessalonian church about just this matter in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. We do not want you to be uninformed, brethren, concerning those who are asleep, so that you will not grieve like the others who have no hope. Since we believe that Jesus died and rose again, In the same way, God will bring with him those who have fallen asleep through Jesus. For we say this to you by a revelation from the Lord. We who are still alive at the Lord's coming will certainly have no advantage over those who have fallen asleep. For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a shout, with the archangel's voice and with the trumpet of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first. Then we who are still alive will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And so we will always be with the Lord. Therefore, encourage one another with these words. Instead of the depressing thought that there is no future, no hope for those who have already died, Paul encourages them precisely with the words that Jesus died and rose again. And he wants them to encourage each other and he wants us to encourage each other with the very same message. Christ is risen. Christ is risen. If Jesus hasn't been resurrected, verse 19, we are pathetic human beings who should be pitied by everyone else. If Paul's proclamation of the gospel is not true, then we Christians are pitiful creatures. We should rightly be mocked by all as feeble-minded, superstitious, weak, gullible, irrational. And we should wake up to ourselves. We should renounce Christ. We should renounce the Christian faith immediately. We should begin to stand on our own two feet. And we should stop denying ourselves all the things that bring us earthly pleasure, even if it may be fleeting pleasure, 
Let us eat and drink, for tomorrow we die. If Christ is not resurrected, there's nothing left for us to, except to indulge our own passions, whether that be for food, drink, entertainment, sex, sport, you name it. Whatever captures your interest, indulge it. If Christ is not resurrected, there's no reason not to. Everything is meaningless if Christ is not resurrected and if there is nothing beyond the grave. So the good you do and the bad you do counts for nothing. So just do what you feel like doing. If it hurts or exploits another person, so what? It's all meaningless anyway. And the dead don't remember. But if you're a Christian who has concluded that the resurrection never happened, I'm sorry to say, you're not a Christian. Paul is pretty clear about that. You only think you're a Christian. If you think the resurrection never happened, you need to repent of your unbelief and you need to turn to Christ in faith that he will fulfil his promise and with the certainty that he will fulfil his warnings for those who refuse to believe. But most Christians have no promise with the resurrection, uh, no problem with the resurrection, even though the world may mock us for believing it. We see what God has revealed in the Bible, and we believe it. For we've learnt to trust his word. And so we look forward to a day when we too will be resurrected, for surely that day is coming. If we have put our hope in Christ for this life only, Paul says, we should be pitied more than anyone. But we don't have hope for this life only, do we? We have hope in Christ far beyond this life. One author has said the essence of hope is that it looks forward to the future. And the ultimate future that believers anticipate is a new heaven and a new earth and glorified bodies like Christ's glorified body. For Christ truly has been raised from the dead. Then we also have a hope that reaches beyond the grave, a hope in all the promises of forgiveness of sin, of reconciliation with God, of eternal life, of eternal joy, of a future home in his presence. And we have hope because we know that Jesus Christ has been raised from the dead. And because we know he has been raised from the dead, we know that we will be also. We have this hope as an anchor for our soul, sure and steadfast, which reaches inside behind the curtain where Jesus, our forerunner, entered on our behalf since he became a priest forever in the order of Melchizedek. Thanks for listening to City Edge Church. For more information, go to cityedgechurch.com.au.